Okay, just a reminder, uh, we get more and more questions on both the Egypt tour for next year as well as the Israel tour. We're still ironing out some of the details on the Israel tour, but we have that set up so people who, a lot of folks who've been to Israel before don't want to necessarily go back, but they would like to go to Greece. So that's an independent trip. Israel's going to be an independent trip or they're going to be put together. So there's three different ways you can do it. And all that should start pulling together within the next week or two. The Egypt tour is coming together, and information for that is all on the website. Also, pray for Camp Arete, pray for Vacation Bible School, and I think we do need some volunteers still for both Vacation Bible School and teaching in Sunday school. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to always make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking according to the Spirit or by the Spirit. Uh, Paul uses one phrase in Romans 8, another in Galatians 5, in contrast to walking according to the flesh or the sin nature. And so when we sin, we need to recover through confession, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to him. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for your grace, for your goodness to us, for the fact that our salvation is not dependent upon who we are, it's not dependent upon what we do, it's not dependent upon what sins we avoid or any human factor, it's totally dependent upon the fact that Jesus Christ paid for our sins when he was on the cross. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand that the more we study Scripture, to come face-to-face with your grace, your faithful, loyal love to us, your power, your might, your strength, your wisdom, all of these attributes that separate you from all the gods that people think of, that you are the unique God of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the heavens and the earth. You stand completely apart from all creation, You are the creator God who made us in your image and likeness to reflect you and to glorify you. And Father, we pray that that we might uh, step up to that challenge to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you might be glorified in our thinking. And help us as we study this evening to think about what what we're learning. And may God the Holy Spirit help us to see how the principles relate to the things we do, the way we live, the way we think. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, I want to go back, touch on a couple of things that I began with last time, just because I've done more study, and some things came to my attention that I didn't, wasn't aware of last time or hadn't thought about it that way. And so we're going to continue to uh, look at the beginning of Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a prayer that is based on 
the Davidic covenant as a promise. So in a lot of ways, what we're going to bring out, what we're going to see is, this is where I stopped last time, was talking about the faith rest drill. That's a phrase that means it is a way in which we use faith. It's a drill. It's a practice. If you grew up in doing any kind of athletics or music or dance or just about any kind of physical activity, you're used to doing drills. And so that was how you trained yourself to be able to do and to perform when it was time to do so. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. We have these various spiritual skills or drills that we engage in, and using faith, using our promises, trusting God when situations, crises, difficulties uh, come up, where we develop that automatic reflex to trust in God, to claim a promise. That is so important. And that's what's going on here in this very lengthy psalm. It is written by Ethan the Ezraite. And I want to go back and look at a couple of things that I pointed out last time about Ethan the Ezraite, simply because we don't know much about him. He's only mentioned one time specifically as Ethan the Ezraite. We'll see that in a minute in 1 Kings 4.31. He's listed there with some other people, and there is an Ethan that is listed with those same people in another passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6. Because of that, my what I was saying last week was that it seems to me he's a contemporary of David and a contemporary of Solomon. We don't know how old he was. And one of the and I'll get into some things in just a minute in talking about that, but I want to bring out some things that I may that I think uh, I'm restating or teaching a little differently from last week as a result of my my study. So Psalm 89 focuses on understanding the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant as an unconditional promise by God to David and to his descendants becomes a foundational promise for the house of Israel, for all of Israel, that they can go to and rely on related to their their past, looking to David, relating to their future, that the Messiah would come from the seed of David and looking to a glorious future where a descendant of David would establish a glorious kingdom with Jerusalem as the capital and all of the Gentiles coming together to worship and in Jerusalem at the temple. The, so the Davidic covenant is foundational. We've studied all of this so much and looking at the three core promises in the Davidic covenant related to an eternal house or dynasty, which means that the line of descendants from David would culminate in somebody who was eternal everlasting, and he would rule over an eternal kingdom. You can't have, really have an eternal kingdom without an eternal house or dynasty and an eternal, an eternal throne. So when we started last time, I looked at this opening superscription in Psalm 89, and it's in, in electronic scripture, they call it 89-0, but it's it is part of inspired text. It's not something that's added later. And it's written by this man, Ethan the Ezraite. And as I pointed out, he is something of a contemporary of David or Solomon. And we see this reference here in 1 Kings 4.30. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east, and all the wisdom of Egypt. Now, who's writing that? 
Who's writing this down? Well, we don't know. I'm glad nobody gave an answer because we don't know. But it is a one of the prophets that was a what wrote and recorded what is in First Kings. Now, the next question is, of course, well, when did they write it? And again, we don't know exactly. And actually, it could have been several prophets. There's a couple of prophets that are mentioned at the beginning during the reign of Solomon and later during the reign of his son Rehoboam. And that those prophets could have written this down and other prophets later at some point, because First Kings and Second Kings was originally one book, and it's written by, or parts of it would be written by different prophets, and then you would most likely have a, uh, a compiler, somebody who was the final editor and put it all together and made it, made it um, read clearly, and, and all of this would be done under the inspiration and oversight of God the Holy Spirit. This is written sometime later. It could be written and probably was written after Solomon died. So if you put yourself in this position of the prophet who's writing down the the record of God's work in Solomon's life and Solomon's reign, and he is writing from a future perspective about Solomon's wisdom at the beginning, and he mentions this comparison. He expects his readers to know who these uh, individuals are, who Ethan, Heman, Calcol, and Darda are, those four men. And he, they would be well known to them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those men were contemporaries of David or Solomon. They would be known. They could be. It's a sense that they could be contemporaries of Solomon. Solomon only lived to be about 60, and it's very conceivable that Ethan lived beyond Solomon's time. He could have been younger than Solomon. He could have lived much longer than Solomon. He could have been older than Solomon and lived longer than Solomon. So all I'm saying is last week I proposed one scenario where he's a contemporary of David and overlaps into Solomon's life. But there's no real occasion, as you read through Psalm 89 and you get to the end, there's a significant serious threat to the, to the dynasty of David. And that's why the writer of the psalm is coming to God in this plea to restore the house of David. It's been threatened. It looks like everything's going to fall apart, and he's calling upon God to solve that, that problem. And he's calling upon God... Uh, to fulfill his promise. So it's a serious, serious threat. And last week I was still wrestling with what events in the life of David could that relate to, and I don't think there there were any that were that serious. Now, I talked about the fact that there were uh, commentators who would uh, suggest either the invasion of uh, of Israel by Shishak, who was a pharaoh of Egypt, or later on the invasion by the Babylonians. Uh, It's interesting nobody mentions the invasion of the Assyrians. And I'm going to suggest something else as I've gone back and read this, and it relates to the invasion of Shishak as a possibility. And since Ethan seems to at least be some sense a contemporary of David and Solomon, I think this threat has to come in that general period of the 
of the end of the united monarchy and the beginning of the divided, uh, divided monarch. Now, when we look at a, we ask the question, okay, who are these people? They are identified as the sons of Mahal. Now, who is he? Well, if you do a search on his name, this is the only time that he is mentioned. But it's not the only time that these four men are mentioned together. If we look at 1 Chronicles 2.6, talks about the sons of Zerah. Now, Zerah lived a long time before, so there's no numbers here. So this is just talking about the descendants of Zerah. It's not talking, he's not being, it's not another name for Machol. Here it is talking about a, an ancestor, and it mentions five people. Zimri, who's not mentioned in the king's passage, Ethan, Heman, Chalcol, and Derod. Slightly different spelling, probably a textual issue where miscopied, uh, left out a D in, because you have Darda in 1 Kings 4.31 and Dara. They just dropped out the D in a copyist error in First Chronicles 2.6. And what this suggests, again, is that, um, that these were a distinctive group of men who were known for their skill and their wisdom. Some have come along and see similar names in the musicians among the Levites, and that you can't sustain that. That is, that's a different family, even though there were some names that, that, were, uh, that were similar. So as we look at this, and we think this through, as I was saying earlier, it seems as if very possible that, that since Solomon dies when he's 60, that Ethan could have lived much longer than he did. The writing, this perspective of the writer is simply telling his audience uh, in comparison to the wisdom of these men, Solomon's wisdom was greater. That doesn't give us any chronological information other than very, very early in that period of Solomon's reign or just after it would be when these men lived and their lives uh, would have overlapped. So what I want you to do now is turn with me to this period, to record of this period, in 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. The first part of 1 Kings deals with the reign of Solomon, the building and construction of the temple. And then we learn about uh, Solomon's basic problem is he marries a lot of women. He has 600 wives, 300 concubines. And they influence him to depart from God and to build idolatrous temples to their, all of their gods. And so he succumbs to the temptation of idolatry. And as a result of that, idolatry permeates the culture of Israel. Now, this is really important to understand. I was having a conversation just a little while ago and one of the things that everybody seems to miss is you, you have a variety of historical interpretations. And you can look at uh, numerous writers, numerous authors on various topics. One thing that they all have in common is that they look to some factor in creation as the causative issue of why things 
go the way they do, why a, a nation rises, why a nation falls, the one thing that they leave out is God. Because most secular historians, if not all secular historians, know little, if anything, about theology, have little, if any, interest in the, the theology, the belief system of the significant people in the world, what drove them to do what they did. And the, biblically speaking, we must understand that the key causative issue in history is not economics. It is not military. It is not technology. It's not education. It's your view of God because that gives you your whole view of reality. And when you change your view of God, it changes everything in your culture. And if you don't believe it, just look at the history of the United States in the last 60 years. We have had a major shift in the way the culture views ultimate reality and God. And the result of that is that we've lost our, 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 our moral foundation. We have lost our moral compass. We don't know what is actually right and what is actually wrong. And we're motivated now for things that have totally finite significance. We're motivated to get more money. We're motivated by material things. We're motivated by emotional things. We're motivated uh, about, uh, uh, by guilt. A lot of ha what happens in the world is we look at the poor, we look at the disenfranchised, and we're motivated by guilt rather than by reason. And, and the consequence is that, that, that we go in a lot of different directions but it all boils down to the fact that we have left the God of our ancestors. We've departed from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Bible as a base. What made American culture great was the fact that it was built on the foundational principles of the Word of God. That doesn't mean everybody was a believer, but they had a... They had a theistic worldview, and they thought in terms of that theistic worldview and that God created, however they thought of that, God created everything, and everybody is accountable to God for the way they live, and everybody's going to face that payday someday. Everybody. And so that affected their educational philosophy, that affected economics, that affected uh, political theory, that affected... Uh, their view of uh, of the judiciary it affected their view of of, penal, uh, of the uh, of punishment and of of jails and the whole penal system everything in life marriage family all of this is determined by your view of God once that changes everything else starts falling apart and that's exactly what we see taking place in the latter part of Solomon's reign and after he dies when there's going to be this, this tax revolt. And so uh, I want to direct your attention to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, we see Rehoboam being crowned and installed as the king of, of Israel. And he goes to Shechem or Shechem, which is located about maybe 40 miles north of Jerusalem in the hill country of, uh, of Samaria. And in verse 1 we read, And Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel united, all the tribes united. All Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So this is his installation. 
And so it happened, the next verse. And what happens in 2 to 3 is we discover that there is not a unity among the tribes, that there's dissatisfaction. And so when Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, heard about this, and he is a, he's been in exile. He's been living in Egypt because he was wanted. Uh, he had angered Solomon because he was challenging Sol- Solomon's ethics, especially when it came to uh, taxes and it came to labor. You just thought issues related to labor and taxes were new. Uh, this goes back uh, as far back as you can you can probably think, and as far back as we know in history. And so the issue is that the, that Solomon, in building the temple, in building his palace, and doing all the great things that he did, he overtaxed the people and he overworked the people, and so they are. They, they want less of that. And so Jeroboam comes back, and he goes to Rehoboam, and he tries to negotiate so that they can reduce the workload and the tax load on the people. And so Rehoboam says, give me three days. I'm going to go to my counselors. And he goes to his counselors. He talks to the older men who serve Solomon, the men who have wisdom and experience and have dealt with so many issues. And they said, lighten the load. Make it easier for them. Don't increase taxes. Don't increase the workload. Let's relax things for a while. This is going to make everybody uh, more prosperous and happy, and this is going to be a, a much better deal. And so then he talks to his young advisors, and they're all filled with arrogance, as a lot of young people are. A lot of younger leaders are. They're filled with arrogance and ambition, and they want to control things. And so they they convince Rehoboam that, no, 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 don't decrease taxes. Don't decrease the workload. Increase it. Increase the workload. Increase the taxes. Demonstrate that you're the one in control and bring everybody uh, under under your authority. And so this is the decision that he made. And the consequences were that the kingdom split. Now, the splitting of this kingdom was the fulfillment of a prophecy. This was divine judgment on Israel, just as the chaos that we see in our culture today is part of divine judgment on our country because we have departed from the Judeo-Christian heritage, the biblical heritage on which this nation was founded, and many of the sins that we see that are so prominent today are sins that are, according to Romans chapter 1, God uh, allows to take place, re- takes away the restraints, and turns people over to these things in order to j- bring that is a judgment on a nation. And so the this prophecy had already been announced, and it was a prophecy that was given to Ahijah the prophet in 1 Kings eleven twenty nine to 39. So this is the last part of, of uh, the previous chapter. So you can just look across the page probably, and you can see what gets, what gets laid out. So what happens when you look at verse, uh, verse 29 is we read it, uh, that Jeroboam is coming back, and he's already angered and irritated uh, Solomon. And so this is at the time when he's leaving Jerusalem and going down to Egypt to find protection from Shishak. And we read in verse 29, Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite met him on the way, and he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. 
And that is, Ahijah's clothed himself with a new garment, and Ahijah takes a hold of this new garment that he's wearing, and he tears it into 12 pieces. What do you think those 12 pieces refer to? 12 disciples? No. The 12 tribes of Israel. So I just want to make sure you're listening. So he tears it into 12 pieces. This is a very dramatic scene. And he's ripping this new expensive garment. It's valuable. That is, Israel is valuable to the Lord. And he tears it into 12 pieces because he is going to show that, that 10 of these pieces will be separated from the other two, and those 10 pieces will become separate as a separate nation, and that God is going to divide, uh, divide the kingdom. And now in verse, then if you read down, into verse 32, he gives the reason for this. Why did God divide the kingdom from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom? First Kings eleven thirty-two, he says, but he shall have one tribe for the sake. Now, this is what I wanted to point out. As he is announcing this judgment to, uh, to, to Jeroboam, Again and again, there's a reference to David and God's promises to David and the house of David. I think that it's just as much a viable reality that the crisis for the house of David wasn't the invasion of Shishak. It's not the invasion of Assyria. It's not the invasion of of Nebuchadnezzar. The crisis is brought on by the idolatry of the nation that led to divine discipline and the split of the nation. David is mentioned again and again throughout this section. So look at you, we look at verse, uh, verse uh, 32, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David. Now, why is that there? To remind us that he is, God is still going to be faithful to his promise to David. And for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. And then in verse 33, he gives the reason. He says, because, that tells us the reason for the discipline, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. He's the one one of the, of the idols that would have the, his arms out in front and have a, a furnace in his arms, and they would bring their living children and burn them alive in the arms of Chemosh. And so they were worshiping Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. Moab, Ammon are all in the area of modern Jordan today. And he says, and they have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. So what we see here is problem number one and indictment number one is they've left the God of the Bible. They've departed from God. God is no longer the central focus and they're worshiping other gods. Now this happens in so many different cultures that end up in collapse. We have all kinds of idols in our culture. It may be They may not be physical idols like they had at that time, but they're idols that have to do with our own self-sufficiency, idols that have to do with material things, idols that have to do with success and prosperity. Not that those things in and of themselves are wrong. It is when they become more important than God. And you're looking to those things to find meaning, happiness, security, and solution to problems that... Uh, rather than looking to God and the Word of God. So 
he says, and at the end he says, they did not walk in the in obedience to the law. So number one, and this is the first half of the Ten Commandments, all related to their relationship to God, thou shalt have no other gods before me, a prohibition of idolatry. They depart from the first part of the law and go after idols. And then on the second, they're not walking according to my ways and doing what is right in my eyes. As Jesus summed it up, the most important commandment is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two is love your neighbor as yourself. The second part of the law focuses on loving others as you'd love yourself, honoring your parents, uh, um, being f- uh, a faithful witness and not a false witness, not stealing. These are all ways in which you honor other people. So that's the summary here in verse 33. And notice at the end he says, as did his father David. Again, a subtle reminder of the importance of David and God's promise to David. Then in verse 34 we read, However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, out of uh, Rehoboam's hand, because I have made him ruler all the days of his life. Why? Look at that next line. For the sake of my servant David. Once again, the reason is given is the Davidic covenant whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my, and my statutes. And then in verse 36, he says, And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David. Again, fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my, to put my name there. And then we look down at verse 37. It says, so I'll take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires. You shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be. Now he's talking to Jeroboam here, saying, I'm going to give you the northern kingdom, and then God makes him a promise. He says, if you listen to all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. That is the northern kingdom. Funny thing that happened. Jeroboam was disobedient almost from the get-go. In fact, every king in the northern kingdom is disobedient to God, and Jeroboam is the one that led them into idolatry at the beginning, and for every king in the northern kingdom after this, you get the same chorus, the same line. And he did evil in the sight of God, evil according to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, over and over and over again. And so uh, this this sets it all up. Now, I want you to skip down. That's the background of chapter 12. Let's skip down to verse 16 in chapter 12. Now, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, this is back to the scenario where they have brought a petition. They have sought to negotiate with Rehoboam, the king of the, the, who's supposed to be the king of all the tribes, and he doesn't listen to them. In fact, he's going to increase the workload. He's going to increase the taxes. And see, that's what happens. You increase the taxes, what happens? You've got to work more to be able to pay your bills. And you think about the fact, uh, a study was done that in, 19, in, uh, in the late 60s, 1968, 69, 
Some of you can still remember those years. Uh, back back then, uh, if you were working, um, if a father, head of the household, father works 40 hours a week, then he provided a certain income and standard of living for the family. That was equivalent to a family of four working the farm back almost 100 years before that. But now just the dad working 40 hours a week. That, that was the family I grew up in. My dad would get up every morning about 6.30, 7.15. He's on the way to the bus stop, catch the bus downtown. He was an engineer, worked for, for Tenneco, got downtown, ate breakfast, worked all day, caught the bus home, was home by 5.20 every day. And my mother was home and took care of all the domestic chores. She didn't work outside the home. Laundry was done. House was clean. Grocery shopping, all the errands done. He would come home, relax, would have dinner. Plenty of time to go to Bible class at night. No pressure, no stress, nothing. Everything was done. By 1980, 12 years later, y'all remember the late 80s when Jim Akata brought us triple-digit or double-digit inflation. Double-digit inflation, and we were looking at more home owner mortgages with a 12, 14, 15% interest rate. Can you imagine that? Those, those of you who are younger don't remember what that was like. That was horrendous. All of a sudden, that, that created a huge social change. Why? Well, because families wanted to have a house to raise their kids. So that meant mom has to go to work. And it took mom working 60 hours a week and dad working 60 hours a week to make the same income and have the same lifestyle that one wage earner, the dad, did in 40 hours in 1968. Think about that. Some of you remember that you had time to go to Bible class five nights a week because you had all this free disposable time. I remember when I was in college in the early 70s, you'd go to sociology classes, and they talked about how we were, going, we were headed to a 30-hour work week, and we would be making more money than we did working 40 hours a week. We were on the verge of this incredible utopic prosperity. What happened to that? You see, everything changed. You, you, you get inflation, you start jacking with the currency and changing this, and, and all this government control, it destroys the economy. So you've got to raise taxes. You raise taxes, people take home less money, so now they have to work more. They'll make more, pay more taxes, but in order to get more, uh, to come home and increase their standing of living, and it just gets in this horrible, endless cycle and the northern kingdom wants to get out of that cycle. And Rehoboam is not going to let him do it. So they are going to split off and do their own thing. And look at how they respond in 1 Kings 2.16. Now, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king. Now, that's Rehoboam who will become the king of Judah, but right now he is their king. This is the key time when they split. They did not listen. When they saw that the king wasn't listening to them, the people said, what share have we in David? It goes right back to the Davidic covenant. What share do we have in the house of David? That's what they're saying. You're the house of David. Said, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. 
to your tents, O Israel, the battle cry. Everybody, let's go home. Let's leave. Let's depart from the southern kingdom. Now, see to your own house. That's the tribe of Judah, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. Wow. I think that's more of a crisis and threat to the house of David than than the invasion by Shishak. Now, we get into that when we look down at the end of chapter 14. There is a uh, statement there about what happens with uh, with Shishak. And this is in 1 Kings 14, 15 to 27. And it really doesn't tell us a whole lot about Shishak there. It talks more about Rehoboam. But in verse 25, we read, it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam. So this is just a short time. So if Ethan the Ezraite lived five years longer, if he was born the same time Solomon was or close to it and lived five years longer beyond the years of somebody who was 60, then it wouldn't be a difficulty. So uh, he he could still be alive at this time. And he certainly would have been alive at the split that occurred between the north and the south. But let's just review what happens with Shishak. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasure of the king's house. He took away everything. And remember, all the gold and silver that's in all the furniture and everything, all the decorations, the shields, the candlesticks, everything that's in the temple, billions of dollars disappears out out of Israel. He took away all these things, took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place. See, he's got to substitute something not quite as good to try to keep it looking just as good as it was before. And what's the problem? The problem is his idolatry and the idolatry in the nation. And so now they go to a counterfeit religion and just just a, a counterfeit facade to make it look like they're still doing the same thing. And inside, there's nothing. And then that pretty much ends with verse 29. But if we turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 12, we have 12 verses that go into a little more detail about what happened uh, when Shishak came in. Egypt attacks uh, Judah in this section, and you can read through that later. And you'll see all that, that transpired. Shishak comes up with a huge army. Verse 3, he's got 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen. That's a tremendous army coming in. Uh, and it's a trained army. It's a professional army. And Israel doesn't have that. And not only that, but they have just split. So they're just in a state of collapse as, as a nation. And so it talks about how he took the fortified cities of Judah and Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam. So we had Abijah the prophet, Shemaiah the prophet. These could have been writing prophets who were writing portions of 1 Kings and 2 Kings uh, during this this overall time period. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak and says to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, and therefore I also have left you in the hand of Shishak. Why are they going through foreign domination why are they going through a collapse uh, what will collapse their economy 
Why are they going through all of these social problems? It's because they departed from the word of God. They departed from the worship of God, and they've gone into idolatry. And so the le- how do they respond? Well, they respond the way they ought to respond. They humble themselves. They, they basically are going to confess their sin. They recognize they have been disobedient to God. They humble themselves, and they said, the Lord is righteous. God is righteous. We've been unrighteous. Now, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, now he's going to change the degree of discipline, but not the fact of discipline. When we confess sin, when we commit sin, when we live in sin, when we are living a life in rebellion against God, and we confess that sin, God is going to do one of three things. Either he's going to just simply forgive us and cleanse us, and there are not going to be any consequences. That happens a lot for all of us, and we ought to be on our knees thanking God that he doesn't deal with us according to our sins all the time. Second thing God can do is just say, well, I'm going to let this hit you in various degrees. Maybe uh, not so much, but you're going to see some consequences for your bad decisions because you need to learn to walk in obedience. And then the third way is God not only lets us feel the uh, consequences of our sin, but then he ratchets it up a little bit and adds another layer of his divine discipline to it. So in this case, what he's doing is he's relaxing some of those consequences. Verse 7, he says, When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. Notice, not total deliverance, some deliverance. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they will be his servants that they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. They have to learn some things, so it's going to be really tough for a while as they become uh, servants of Egypt. They are going to be subjugated and ruled over by the Egyptians. And so then it goes on much the same way that for the First Kings account does. So this, I think, is gives us a much better context uh, the writing of Ezra, I mean of Ethan the Ezraite in Psalm 89, it, my opinion, it's not the invasion of Shishak. My opinion is it's the threat to the house of David that is a result of the civil war and the split that occurs in, in Israel. But whatever the problem is that, that precipitated this, the solution is the same. And that's one of the things that you have to learn as a basic reality in the spiritual life. You will run into people. I kind of chuckle right now because <clears throat> uh, Dan was telling me that when he was in, in um, uh, Israel at, the, at Yad Vashem at the Christian Leadership Course, there's always a wide spectrum of Christians that are in the group. And I was fortunate when I went that there were a number of of men there who were pastors who were who thought a lot like we do. There were six or seven in the group, I think. But there were a lot of others that were just kind of strange. Well, you know, they, they have prayer times, and they get out of control. The charismatics just get out of control. And, and uh, of course, if somebody is ill or sick and somebody in the group 
uh, not Dan, but somebody else had been diagnosed recently with cancer, and they were just casting out demons and doing this and doing that. And see, what happens in, in this whole metaphysical spiritual warfare false teaching that has come into Christianity in the last 50 or 60 years is a failure to recognize how God uses problems in our life, whether it's health problems or whether it's wealth problems or whether it's uh, just dealing with people problems or whatever it may be. And the solution is not to uh, expect God to automatically remove all of these kinds of things. It is to trust in God, to claim promises, and to keep persevering in obedience even in the midst of all of the difficulty. And so what so often happens is that when we face problems, you see so many people say, oh, it must be a demon. It's, it's, it's the angelic conflict. Well, ultimately, almost everything's the angelic conflict, but it's not a direct attack by Satan. It's just 90% of what we encounter is just living in a fallen world with fallen people in fallen societies and cultures and governments and structures, and that's what we have to deal with. So the solution is always the same solution. It doesn't matter if we're being attacked by Satan. It doesn't matter if you're being attacked by a demon. It doesn't matter if the assault is coming from the world system. It doesn't matter if the problem is your own sin nature. The solution is always the same. It's to trust God and obey him and walk with him. It's summarized well in a classic hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way. You know, it's just really simple. Christian life isn't that hard. It is to trust God, know his word, claim his promises, and walk more closely with him today than we did yesterday. That's it. If you get that down, you're going to go, go forward in your spiritual life. And so it's not looking for some other, you know, special divine miracle or intervention. It's what the psalmist in Psalm 89 is doing. God, you made this promise. I'm going to hold you to that promise. Right now, the house of David is in a state of collapse, and I'm going to claim your promise. I'm going to remind you of the promise you made to David and to fulfill it and to raise up the house of David and sustain it just as you said and just as you promised. So that is the focal point when we get into Psalm 89. Now, let me just remind you of the basic organization and breakdown of Psalm 89. We saw that in the first 18 verses... The focus is on God's love and faithfulness. We talked about those words, chesed, that is sometimes translated in this passage in the New King James and King James as mercy. Other places, towards the end of the psalm, it's translated as loving kindness. Some translations, some English translations translated as God's loyal love, his steadfast love. Uh, sometimes even it's translated compassion. And the other word that is used in tandem with it throughout this, this psalm is God's faithfulness. And so that's the focus of those first 18 verses. They are praising God for who he is. Because when we face problems, when you face the collapse of the culture around you, when you see the education system uh, in the universities no longer educating the 
the your young people that are going off there and they're being brainwashed into pure liberalism and socialism, then uh, you just wonder, is there going to be any kind of future? Put yourself in the place of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Mishael, Azariah, Daniel, at the time of the invasion, the first invasion of Hezekiah. How do you think they felt? It's all going to fall apart. How unstable can it be? But they had stability because they internalized the word, and that gave them hope. It gave them confidence that no matter what may happen, around us, even if we're deported to another country, even if they're going to try to force us to eat all that non-kosher food, God's still in control, and God is going, going to provide for us, and his plan and his purpose is going to be realized. And so every problem needs to be, first of all, addressed by going to the character of God, going to his grace, his loyalty, that his his power, his majesty, all of these things, his righteousness, his love, all these attributes are brought brought out in this section. Second section, 19 to 37, is a review of God's promise to David as the foundation of the psalmist's petition, of uh, Ethan's petition to God. He's claiming that promise. So uh, we'll look at that. And then in the third section, he makes his his he he brings it to a conclusion he petitions god to remain faithful to those promises he made to david even though there's been sin in the house of david even though god has brought all this divine discipline upon them and he's not going to cancel his covenant and that's the last part of the psalm from 38 to 52 so we're in that first section just looking at the first Two parts, uh, the first four verses that focuses on God's covenant loyal love and his faithfulness in praising them, and then the second part, that God's character is unique. It's, it's just amazing the number of passages. I think next time I go through the Word of God and I'm reading through it, I'm going to start writing down all the passages that talk about the uniqueness of God. There is no one like God. There is nothing like God. There is no other God like God. Over and over again, we hear these promises, and I've made a list of some that we'll, we will review, but this is uh, what the focal point is uh, here in this first section. And the praise of the Lord uh, for his unique and awesome attributes. So that's the basic outline that we're getting into. Now, last time we also looked at these words, chesed and amuna. Just to remind you, chesed, loving kindness, God's faithful, loyal love. He's true to his promises. He's true to his covenant. So when you memorize promises, you can claim them because you know God is going to fulfill his promise and his word. The second word, emunach, is very close in meaning. You get the idea from the translation of 2 Kings 18.16 that one of the cognates of this word has the idea of the foundation of the pillars. That's what doorpost is. It's the foundation of the pillar. It's unshakable. It's bedrock. You cannot shake it. God's promises are that way. And then we went through the psalm and saw places where these are parallel, especially in the opening. I will sing of the mercies, that's chesed, the faithful, loyal love of the Lord. With my mouth I will make known 
your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness, you shall be established in the very heavens. And then a number of other verses use these in parallel, verse 14 and 24, uh, verses 28, 33, 49. Again and again, these themes are reiterated. Then I came to the end, and we just briefly went through the three steps in the faith rest drill. Faith means to trust God. So you hit a crisis, you hit a difficulty, you hit a speed bump. It can be health, it can be wealth, it can be people, it can be any number of things. And you, you need to train yourself that as soon as this happens, I need to think of a promise. That's why in the little promise book that I have, I've broken them down into some different categories. There could be a lot more, but I didn't want to build an exhaustive list of promises, but one that would be handy as a starting point. We claim a promise. Now, that's an interesting phrase. I'm thinking a lot about language lately because, as you know, Daniel Smallyard is getting ready to come here, and you've got to help him with English. And we use so many idioms. And I remember the first time that I was teaching this in Ukraine, and I said, claim a promise. And the translator looked at me and goes, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to claim a promise? Where does that idiom come from? Anybody have any idea? Okay, you go to the gold fields and you find gold and you stake a claim. You say, this is mine. That's the kind of the background on this whole idiom. We're going to claim something. This is ours. We're going to put a claim in. This is a promise to me. You've made it to me. But that's just a whole idiom there that is... Uh, that that people mix. So we're going to make this claim. We're going to stake our claim on this verse in God's word that you made it for me, and I'm going to hold you to it. We mix faith with the promise. That's the idea. You're saying, God, you made this promise to me, and I'm going to hold you to it. And so sometimes we think of a whole promise. Sometimes we just think of a phrase or a sentence in the promise. Sometimes we think of a principle. But the real examples that we have of people in the Scripture doing this are like what we have in this verse, I mean, in this psalm. We see him quoting the phrases of God from the covenant he made with Abraham. He's not quoting abstract principles. When Jesus is dealing with Satan and the temptations in the wilderness, he quotes Scripture. He doesn't just say, well, according to, you know, my theology, you know, doctrines such and such. No, he, he is quoting Scripture. Now, there's nothing wrong with extrapolating from that. That happens in Scripture as well. You have prayers, for example, in, in the early parts of Acts. There's a couple of places where people are praying for, for Peter. They're praying for Peter and John who are in prison. And what they're doing is they're taking psalms and working them over in order to pull out what the key promises and principles are And they're using that to argue in a legal sense to establish a a basis to uh, for God to act. Say, God, this is what you promised. This is how we'd like to act if you you made that promise, and we can hold you to it. So that's the first step. The second step is to think through the doctrinal rationales. There is a rationale or a chain of reasoning, a logic chain 
that is embedded in every every promise. And that's just the nature of language. You can't have language without logic. One of the first things you, you learn if you take a course on logic is that you have to understand grammatical structures of propositions because every sentence and everything that we say is built on an understanding of certain logical relationships within the clauses and phrases of a sentence. If logic weren't what under didn't provide the underpinning for a for a statement, then our statements would be become meaningless, just just gibberish. So we think it through. This is part of what the Bible refers to as meditation. And then we come to a conclusion. Well, God, if you said this, then I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to relax. Uh, Pam was telling me that when she was just down in Guatemala, Guatemala this last couple of weeks, that there was one lady who came in. She was supposed to have some surgery. She was anxious. She was worried. She couldn't sleep. Uh, Pam walked through the promise book with her. She sat there. She read through the promises. Next thing you know, she was sound asleep. That's reaching a conclusion. And God's in control. Then you're asleep. So that's how it works. Now, this is what's going on in the text here. Second Samuel 7.12 says this. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. So we see this same kind of, this This is claimed in Psalm 89. This God is reminded of what he will do. God promised, I will establish his kingdom. In verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne. See, these statements are all stated as promises. I will set up your seed after you. I will establish the kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. I will chasten him and my mercy shall not depart from him. Those are all straight promises. And uh, in verses 15 and 16, there's a conclusion uh, that's reached in the, in the covenant, but my mercy, that is my chesed, shall not depart from him. So when he's t- the psalmist starts off, what does he say? I will sing of the chesed of the Lord forever. He's just taking the verbiage straight from the covenant and God, you're, it's your mercy. You said that your mercy would not depart. I will sing of your mercies forever. So you see how he's taking what God has said, and he's praising him for that. And then in verse 16, and your house, your kingdom will be established forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And this is what is going to be the subject of the prayer. So when we get to verse 1, I color-coded this for you so you could and under, use underlines, use three different things, a blue color, a purple color, and an underline to point out the parallels in thought. That's what makes it good poetry. Is it, there's a repetition of ideas. That's this uh, called synonymous parallelism. Sometimes there's, it, the second line is the opposite of the first line, that's called an antithetical parallelism. 
And the third most often kind is where the second line takes something in the first line and expands it, and that's called an emblematic parallelism. We'll see the examples of those as we go through here. So in the first verse, he's saying, I will sing. In the second line, which often the second line expands and enhances the first line, and he says, with my mouth I will make known. How's he going to make it known with his mouth? Through singing. That is one of the things that we do. It's interesting that the first thing mentioned for those who are being filled by the Spirit is that they will sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs. And that doesn't mean just in the congregation. But one of the reasons that we sing a lot of hymns frequently is so that we can learn them well enough to where we don't even need to look at our hymnal. How are you going to sing of the mercies of the Lord when you can't remember the words to the hymns when you're driving down the freeway? See, we've got to not, oh, golly, he wants me to memorize scripture, and now he wants me to memorize the lyrics to the hymns. Oh, so much work in the Christian life. So I will sing is parallel to with my mouth, I will make known. And what's he singing about? What's he making known? In the first stanza, it's mercies, but it's chesed. It's your faithful, loyal love. The parallel in the second line is your amuna, your faithfulness, your steadfastness. So that expands. It's the faithful, loyal love is a broader concept. Your faithfulness is a more narrow concept. Why am I going to sing? Why am I going to make this known? Well, that's indicated by that first word in verse 2, for. That's giving the explanation of that first verse. For I have said, this is close to saying I've made a vow. He doesn't use that language, but it's close. He has said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. Now, I didn't highlight it. But mercy and faithfulness are parallel. That's clear because I've underlined them. What's the next parallel? The next parallel is loving kindness shall be built up forever. Now, I want you to notice that is it built once and stay there, or is it continuously added to? The translation here makes it clear it's something that is continuously built up. God's faithful, loyal love is enhanced from event to event, to century to century. So I have said mercy shall be built up. There's a fabulous word there, bana. It's, it's, it's um, the word to construct something. Men, I'm sorry, but you were just made Women were built. That's what the Holy Spirit used the word for. It, it, it's a more detailed construction, okay? Men are just put together. Women are built. And that's the idea there. Mercy shall be built up forever, and your faithfulness you shall establish. And this word is a word that talks about something that is foundational, Okay? So if you're reading this and you key in on the word for construction, for being built up and being established, what's the sense that you get? You go by these multi-story, these skyscrapers that are being built around Houston, and you see them lay the foundation. That's stability. And so the verbs here are talking about the stability 
the certainty, the steadfastness of God's chesed and God's emuna, his faithful, loyal love and his faithfulness. It's rock solid. And and all through these verses, we get into um, the next verse, verse 3. I have made a covenant with David. I have sworn to my servant David. And then look at verse 4. Your seed I will, there's our word, establish again, and build up your throne. So what he, on the one hand, he's weaving in the concepts of, of faithfulness and loyal love, but he's complementing that with verbs of stability to build up and to establish. So you come out of this opening five verses, and you should come out of it with a sense that God's just unshakable. This is something that is rock solid no matter. There's nothing in this world, nothing in my life that can shake God. He's never surprised by anything. His purpose for your life is never upset by anything that comes along. No matter what transpires, no matter how much you may fail, and God forgive you, he will provide for you. His purpose is not destroyed. You are not greater than God. God will take care of things. You can trust him, and it's rock solid. Now, in verse 3, it says, I've made a covenant with David, with my chosen, and that's parallel to I have sworn. And the point I want to make there is what's, what enacts a covenant scripturally, and we're not going to go down the rabbit trail this would involve, is the swearing of an oath. It's not the sacrifice. There are oaths that are, there are covenants that are made where there's no sacrifice, was there a sacrifice in 2 Samuel 7? No. There is later when David goes and gives a thank offering to the Lord, but there is not a sacrifice to cut the covenant because a covenant is grounded on an oath, not on the sacrifice. That has a lot of implications, but you just want to remember that. And my chosen is parallel to my servant David. I've made a covenant with my chosen is a more general statement. Second line, I've sworn to my servant David, your seed, that is your descendant, I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. That is another key word that we see, all generations. Let me back this up. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. That is parallel to the all generations at the end of verse 1. It's eternal. 89.2, for I have said mercy shall be built up forever, and your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. That heavens is eternal. Shemaim, the heavens are eternal. So you get this eternal stability comes out of looking at all of these different words. So we'll stop here at the end of verse 4, and next time we'll start getting into the next section, 5 through 18, which really focuses us on the attributes and the character of God. Father, thank you for this time we've had to think about these things, to be reminded that that you're the center of everything. You're the ultimate cause of all things, and I don't mean that in an efficient cause sense, but how people, how people obey you, how, how people think about you, uh, what they do with you, that affects everything in our life. You are at the center of everything. 
Your absence changes everything. Your presence transforms everything. Father, we pray that we may come to grips with this, that no matter what heartache or problem or challenge or difficulty we face, you're stable, your plan is stable, you're, you're rock solid, you're our fortress, you are our, uh, our shield, you are our bulwark, you are our rock. And that means that only in you is there stability in the midst of a shifting, changing, chaotic world. And we pray that we may grow to love you and to trust you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.